0: Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Mann. Welcome back to part two of my discussion with Ali Wine, senior analyst with Eurasia Group's Global Macro Practice. In part one, Ali and I discussed the state of play of U.S.-China relations ahead of the Biden administration entering office, and Ali shared two principles that he believes should guide the Biden administration's China policy. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to part one before proceeding. In part two in this episode, Ali and I pick up where we left off discussing his third and fourth principles to formulate a sustainable U.S. strategy toward China and the outlook for the U.S.-China relationship going forward. Ali's ideas are all included in an article that Ali wrote for the Carnegie Tsinghua website, and I would encourage you to review that as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Some of this, I think, Ali, feeds into your third principle, Um, and that is reposition abroad and rebuild at home. You often hear people say, we need to strengthen at home. Um, you know, I've written a piece in 2013 saying, you know, good China policy begins with strengthening ourselves at home. Um, but your point about, and, and Jake Sullivan as well, um, I like his formulation, you know, former Carnegie uh, scholar who's now going in as the national security advisor designate, um, you know, he says, the, when it comes to China, we ought to figure out how we can run faster ourselves instead of trying to slow China down. And I think that's a great point. But you also put in this principle reposition abroad, which takes into account that over the last four years, you know, we've taken kind of a hit, a pretty significant hit internationally. And this will take some time to, to reposition the United States, to build trust Um, And we can't, this is not a light switch where you turn it on and turn it off. It takes time. And so talk a little bit about this principle of reposition abroad and rebuild at home. Why and how are we going to do this repositioning abroad? What will it take to, to get, you know, American credibility back? And in terms of rebuild at home, how much, how difficult will this be, given that it's highly possible that Joe Biden will face a divided government with the Senate uh, being majority Republican, so the point that you
1: just made is, is I think, the most important one. Uh, we're not talking about turning on a light switch. Um, we're talking about a much more uh, protracted, much more arduous process. And you know, had you know, had the Trump had the the had the Trump presidency been a hypothetical, had it remained a hypothetical. Um, we will be having a different conversation. But because the president was elected uh, and the president challenged many of the orthodoxies that had guided U.S. foreign policy uh, in, across Republican and Democratic administrations for, uh, you know, for the better part of three quarters of a century, and because, as, as has been made clear by the, uh, the vote tallies in 2020, I mean, he received, I believe he received approximately 74 million votes, about 11 million more votes than he did in 2016, so in terms of repositioning abroad, I would say there are two components. One is just undoing a lot of the, the steps, undoing a lot of the steps of the previous administration. And this means um, basically avoiding own goals. And so when you, when you withdraw from international institutions, multilateral agreements, it's you essentially you're removing yourself from arenas of contention, you're lessening your ability to exert an influence. And so there are many legitimate Uh, critiques. One can level at, for example, the World Health Organization, but we are more likely to be able to affect reforms to that that critical institution if we are donating and if we're present than if we we exit. So so part one of repositioning abroad is reversing some of those own goals in terms of withdrawals from critical international uh, institutions and multilateral agreements. Uh, Part two is going beyond. It's not enough to essentially say, sort of to to fill holes that have been dug, we have to go beyond. We have to be more creative and more proactive in our multilateralism and think about ways in which the United States cannot simply win back trust with allies and partners, but think about really creative, bold initiatives that the United States can pursue in tandem with allies and partners. And whether it is thinking about how to stimulate economic and technological development in vast swaths of the developing world, whether it is uh, contributing more proactively to discussions around the norms that are going to govern the use of emerging technologies, whether it's, there are a number of domains in which we need it's so part one is reversing own goals, filling in holes that have been dug. Part two is going beyond and, and being more, and thinking about sort of a bolder agenda. I think it's, uh, uh, I was quite encouraged to see the draft European Commission paper talking about, uh, and, and, even if it's even if it proves to be largely symbolic i think the symbolism is quite powerful talking about how the need for a reinvigorated transatlantic alliance that is pursuing cooperation in the full range of domains and i think that we need more more discussion uh, in that vein uh, but part 3 and and this this challenge in terms of repositioning abroad will arguably be the most difficult is uh, convincing allies and partners that uh, the the multilateralism, uh, the multilateralism, the multilateralism, uh, the the engagement, the, uh, the the participation in international institutions and fora that we will see in a Biden administration that they aren't going to be reversed in 2024 mm-hmm. or in 2028. I think yeah. one of the concerns that a lot of allies and partners have is is you know, was the America, was an America first foreign policy, was it an aberration or was it a harbinger? Um, If they conclude that it was an aberration, uh, they if they conclude that it was an aberration, I think that they will be far more likely to make common cause with and make commitments to Washington. If they believe it's a harbinger or if they believe that uh, the diplomacy that we're likely to see over the next four years could easily be reversed, um, then they're likely to be much more tentative. And so doing the hard work of assuring allies and partners that uh, that uh, multilateralism commitment to international institutions and and, and agreements uh, that those are uh, that those are much more representative of of, of enduring us foreign policy yep. and
0: and then and then this gets to
1: uh, and to i will say
0: of, Ali, on, on that question i i i wish i knew the answer aberration you know or a harbinger i you know i'm am even sort of you know left wondering myself um yeah when you hear, you know, indications that Trump may run again in 2024, mm-hmm. and even if not Trump, somebody, you know, cut from similar cloth, sure. um, who will carry similar viewpoints into a campaign, and if they win into, a, and so you wonder whether you're going to have this, you know, pendulum swing back and forth, this dramatic one every, you know, four years or eight years, and like you say, countries around the world are going to have to grapple with that as they... Mm-hmm decide, you know, how closely to align with and work with the United States, in particular on questions related to China. Mm-hmm. Now, one one thing I think, sort of a, um, one of the um, unintended uh, consequences, I think, of uh, what we've seen over the last four years, is that countries around the world has ha- have had to think about China, uh, without having the luxury of a guaranteed commitment of the United States in terms of supporting it and i think that's led to more harder line assessments from those countries toward china so that works in our favor of being able to you know bring some coordination and collaboration in our approach with china but as you rightly suggest the question about whether or not the united states is a reliable partner over the long term you know, will be a question that many of these countries are trying to grapple with. And, and to your point, I do think that China's, I would say, very ill-advised
1: uh, you know, course of conduct, in 2020 in particular, has afforded, uh, has afforded the United States, I think, a set of opportunities that it would be, that I, I think it should very energetically embrace. I mean, if you look at, so whether you look at the, the newfound momentum of the Five Eyes Network, the newfound momentum of the Quad, the uh, the, the UK's proposal for a D10 uh, to reduce uh, reliance on uh, uh, on Chinese uh, 5G sort of equipment and know-how. So there are a number of there are a number of opportunities. I think there are a number of countries that are looking to uh, they're looking to partner more more intentionally uh, with the United States in a range of domains. Although I would I would hasten to note, and and I think that this is important in terms of repositioning abroad as the United States... So one, counterproductive Chinese diplomacy is not in and of itself sufficient for, uh, or sufficient to establish uh, or to, to renew U.S. credibility. Uh, it creates openings, but yep. it doesn't compensate for, for a lack of, sort of strategic U.S. foreign policy. Point number one, and point number two is, um, I think that the United States should be careful not to confuse, uh, or, or not to sort of overinterpret what, what's occurring. I don't think, yep. I suspect that we're more likely to see um, uh, ad hoc, uh, ad hoc, different groupings of countries joining forces of the United States to push back against China selectively and on certain issues, mm-hmm. um, and to varying extents. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but but if we look at you know the Quad, the Five Eyes network, the D10, there may be some there may be some overlap between those different groupings. Um, but I don't think that if I don't think that those disparate groupings lend themselves to sort of a a broader Cold War style coalition. And so I think that the United States will have to, it should embrace those opportunities, but temper its expectations. Um, But just to round out the third principle, I think that as as energetically and as assiduously as we need to reposition ourselves abroad, we also have to rebuild at home. And I would argue that our ability to reposition ourselves uh, abroad will depend on the extent to which we rebuild at home. Uh, I think it's difficult to overstate the reputational damage that the United States has incurred with its mismanagement of the pandemic. And I think that a number of allies and partners ask themselves, and, and with, with, with due cause, they ask themselves, how can we, and perhaps more importantly, why should we entrust the United States with the far larger task of reinvigorating a global order that was so manifestly equipped to deal with this health-come-economic uh, crisis? Uh, if it can't attend to its own challenges at home, right? And so, right. if so, the United States it accounts for roughly, I think, roughly four percent of the world's population, but roughly twenty percent of COVID nineteen uh, infections and roughly twenty percent of uh, COVID nineteen fatalities. And so, I th- I think the United States, it's and I, I've given this analogy before, but it's it's perhaps a, a somewhat. Facetious analogy, and I certainly don't mean to trivialize what we're discussing, but I, I think it's it's, it's illustrative. Uh, I, I've given this analogy that, uh, and, and I'll relate it back to this discussion. But imagine that you are a imagine that you're a physical trainer, and imagine that a new client or a prospective client walks into your office and says, "I want to run a marathon." And a responsible physical trainer would say, "Well, I've never met you before. I don't know anything about your your physical condition, your stamina, so." first, let me see you run a mile. Then let me see you run, maybe do a 5k, a 10k. The point is that if, you, if I haven't met somebody, you wouldn't trust somebody to run a marathon if somebody collapses after running a mile or after running a 5k. And so the, right. the relationship of that analogy is, I think allies and partners will say, look, to the United States, if you can get, you need to get your pandemic under control, if you can make progress on addressing some of these systemic domestic challenges that you're facing, whether it's Uh, Intense intensifying political polarization, growing income inequality, this mismanagement of the pandemic, first demonstrate domestic competence. And if you demonstrate domestic competence, then we might, you know, we'll entrust you with growing uh, responsibilities uh, abroad. So I think that there is this this inescapable uh, uh, interconnection between external competitiveness and domestic competence. They reinforce one another, they inform one another, and you really can't talk about one one or the other in a vacuum. So I think that the United States needs to pursue both of those as reinforcing, reinforcing pillars of its foreign policy.
0: Great, um, Ali. The the final principle that you lay out is uh, entitled "Strive for a Durable Cohabitation," and I want to, I want you to talk a little bit about that. In this section, I you know I note you get at this question about how other countries see China, uh, how they see working with China in ways that it could benefit from, um, but also see some of the actions and policies and behaviors of China that undermine their interest and they wanna protect against. Um, so a, a balancing, a, a trying to thread the needle with China. And you talk about Secretary of State Pompeo's approach, which seems to be more of asking these countries to choose sides, choose the US over uh, China and um, as you I think you rightly point out that's not the kind of choice that other countries are wanting to make for a variety of reasons and so uh, that uh, doesn't appear to be the best approach and so you know under this principle of strive for a durable cohabitation you know what would a better approach be? So, So it would begin with the point that you just made which is that
1: I think we are going to we'll have to, even with our closest allies in Europe and Asia, I think that we'll have to temper our expectations of how far, how far they will come with us in, in managing the China challenge. There will be cases in which countries don't share our policy prerogatives. There may be cases in which countries don't share our threat perceptions. And we'll have to to factor in those those considerations. And it goes to my earlier point that the United States is far less likely to assemble a grand coalition of allies and partners to contain China than it will be to assemble kind of a, an ad hoc ever-evolving patchwork of disparate initiatives aimed at pushing back against China selectively and on, on certain issues. So when I think about when I think about China's extant economic centrality and likely continued economic centrality, when I think about the unlikelihood of a grand block that would seek to contain China, when I think about the range of issues on which Washington and Beijing need to cooperate to assure their own vital national interests, when I put those factors together, I, I really think that the only, the only way forward is to think, uh, to think about how we can strive for a, a durable uh, cohabitation, competitive cohabitation, competitive coexistence. And that answer is, uh, it's not satisfying uh, but i think that our mandate and it's not satisfying in part because um, it, it's not satisfying for a couple of reasons one is that uh, psychologically we prefer as individuals as countries as businesses we prefer decisive outcomes um, so we know what happened to uh, we know what happened to japan in the 1930s and 1940s we know what happened to nazi germany they were defeated we know what happened to the soviet union it collapsed China is not primed for defeat. It's not primed for a Soviet-style collapse. It's, despite the competitive liabilities, it's manifest in numerous competitive liabilities, some of which we discussed earlier. I think, I, I would bet that China is going to, it's going to be an enduring actor and a central actor in world affairs. And so, and an enduring and central actor in world affairs with which the United States maintains a range of interdependencies, despite all of the talk about decoupling. And so... The reality then, so, so we're uncomfortable because we don't like ambiguity in our in our dealings. The other reason is that uh, the United States, it's very, I think it's very challenging psychologically that America's principal strategic competitor um, is a country that was supposed to be firmly on the wrong side of modernity, as we conceived of it in, in post-Cold War terms. And when you recognize that a country has... Uh, sort of resurged so quickly and so comprehensively that in many ways is antithetical to your precepts for governing yourself internally for arranging an international system. And that reality is quite, is quite disconcerting. Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned Dr. Kissinger and Dr. Kissinger often stresses the point that neither the United States nor China has, the, it, it's not only that they aren't inclined to enter into this kind of ambiguous cooperative, cohabitative undertaking with a country of which they're intrinsically suspicious. Neither of them has the the requisite experience in in that type of undertaking. Um, and And yet, despite the ambiguity of the undertaking, the difficulty of the undertaking, we don't know that there isn't any end state by definition. Cohabitation by its very nature does not lend itself to an end state. It lends itself only to fluid, dynamic, uh, tense steady states, ever-evolving steady states. And that and that type of answer is very unsatisfying, but it strikes me as being really the only plausible, plausible answer. And so um, I think what that means for US policy is thinking less in terms of victory and more in terms of cohabitation. It means less about dramatic gains and more about uh, incremental advances. It means thinking more about uh, affirmative visions, rather than uh, rather than sort of existential challengers, and so it's 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 a very difficult challenge. Uh, but having you know having said so, I, I also think that the the dilemma it's a dilemma that I think is equally relevant for uh, for Beijing. Um, and whatever pretend whatever long term pretensions Beijing may harbor, whatever long term. Uh, intentions uh, Beijing may harbor, I think that China will have to accommodate itself to the reality that it no longer confronts the Asia of antiquity in which it was surrounded by comparatively far weaker states that couldn't hold their own economically and militarily. China today is hemmed in by not only U.S. naval power, but it's hemmed in by formidable uh, economic and military democracies. Uh, India, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and so on. I think that China will have to accommodate itself to the reality that it's, forget about achieving global hegemony. I think there are real questions about whether China could even come to exercise unipolarity uh, within the Asia Pacific. So I think mm-hmm. that both Washington and Beijing need to think, um, the sooner the sooner that Washington and Beijing accept that neither one of them will be able to dominate the other or marginalize the other or relegate it to a position, to a trivial or marginal position in world affairs, the better. and. And the more likely it will be that they will, however begrudgingly, think about how they can put in place institutions, protocols, and norms that will guide them in this very tense, uh, this tense period.
0: Ollie, that was a terrific discussion. And I think uh, you've laid out four very smart principles, in my view. Um, and I I think they are, you're, you're in the article, and today on the podcast, you're a thoughtful approach to those principles uh is quite clear um and as i said the timing of this piece is quite good and i'm hoping that uh, advisors to president-elect biden have the piece in their hands and uh can 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 try to put some meat on the bones of uh, what's a what's a very good article thank you very much for joining the podcast i hope to get you back on uh in the near term as we as we see how things unfold uh, in the early days of a Biden administration. But as you've said early on and we've discussed, uh, China's role will be key as well here. And what China does and does not do will play a major role uh, in how the US-China relationship unfolds. So thank you again for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on. Paul, thank you so much. It was an honor and a privilege. Take care. You too. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Carnegie Chinghua China in the World podcast. Uh, please visit our website uh, for more podcasts and for articles and other material from the Carnegie Chinghua Center. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegiechinghua.org. This episode was produced by Lucas Cheyenne with assistance from Madison Reed, Luke Incarnation, Li Qi Shu, John Ferguson, and Sophia Rosso.